I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Our guest historian on today's History Today podcast is Marlena L. Doubt, who is Professor of African Diaspora Studies at the University of Virginia. And she's written a fascinating article on the wrongful death of Toussaint Louverture, which is in the June edition of History Today. So welcome, Professor Doubt. Thank you. First of all, who was Toussaint Louverture? Can you tell us something about his background? Toussaint Louverture is, is probably the most well-known figure of the Haitian Revolution, um, but the Haitian Revolution is um, sadly still not really that well-known itself, but he became this kind of global icon um, for enslaved people fighting for their freedom. And so he was born um, in the French colony of Saint-Domingue in the 1740s. Um, he had two parents who were actually from um, they were erratas um, from, from Africa. They had been um, captured and forcibly transported to the colony. Um, and, uh, and they had, you know, children there and Toussaint became sort of the most illustrious, but in fact, his siblings would fight alongside him um, in the Haitian revolution as well. Um, and so uh, he worked um, on a plantation. He actually gained his liberty before um, the outbreak of the Haitian Revolution. And there are a lot of different stories and theories about how that happened. Um, and there's a lot of documentation. It's just not documentation that shows exactly the precise moment in which it occurred. But we do know that it was before 1791, which is when the revolution um, breaks out. And, and the revolution, the start of sort of the burning of plantations, enslaved people uh, rising up against their masters, happens not far from the plantation where he was employed still. Um, and so we believe that he did have a role um, in the earliest days of the outbreak, but not necessarily. Um, as the leader that he would later become, and I should say, and soon become. And he was really the kind of person who rallied people together because um, we talk about quote unquote slave revolution or slave rebellion, but really the Haitian revolution is a collection of kind of multiple different strands of people fighting for their freedom because there are the white French colonists who at some point are opposed to the metropole, to the French metropolitan government. Then there are also free people of color um, of which 
who said was apart and have their own interests. Then there are sort of the what they call the Creole slaves who were people born in the colony and slave people born in the colony itself. And then there were a lot of people from various places in Africa who really have not been in the colony uh, that long. And so to speak of any kind of unity of groups at the early moment um, is, is difficult. But Toussaint Louverture, the greatest thing about him as a leader was his ability to kind of pull a bunch of people with different interests together and get them to fight for the same cause. And so his famous speech in 1793 was basically brothers, let us all come together and fight for the same cause, which is when, you know, basically um, slavery is going to be abolished in the colony first by uh, Saint-Onax and then by Paul Verrel, and then later France will come in in February of 1794 and abolish it in in the entire French empire. So he had this enormous influence on the trajectory of slavery in the French colonies. And so we've got this sort of shifting hierarchy in um, Saint-Domingue, which eventually becomes Haiti. Um, Are these, when we talk about unity, and I suppose there's squabbling as well on the island, that's promoted to a certain extent, I would presume, by the French Revolution itself, because the idea of equality that's there, liberty, fraternity, those kind of uh, paragons of the French Revolution must have had a kind of seismic effect on people there. The metropolitan France has this enormous seismic effect that's then embraced by the people uh, in the Caribbean uh, when they're when they're looking at this. I mean, how does it? How does he unify what looks like quite a disparate group of people that you've described? I mean, he talks so much about kind of he he uses that language of brotherhood that is exactly what we find um, the Jacobin the language that the Jacobins are using and so much um, echoed in the Declaration of the Rights of Man and you know Toussaint Louverture was aware of. Um, the the revolution in France, certainly, but also the writings that supported it. Um, Even though there's a lot of research now that's, you know, the Abbe Reynal's Histoire des Deux Andes, this compilation and some of the passages that that are said to have kind of radicalized Louverture are not passages that were necessarily written by Reynal himself. Um, But still, that work had an enormous influence in the colonies because even if we sort of accept the, we push aside the question of whether Toussaint Verture really sat there, as the early biographers would say, sat there with a the book open and was reading that page and thought, I'm the Black Spartacus, right? Even if we put that question aside, we find free people of color and other people in their personal letters talking about the effect that this book is having. And Julien Raymond is one of those people. And he was a free person of color who would end up actually helping Toussaint Louverture and being kind of one of the architects of the 1801 um, constitution that Louverture orders to be sort of um, created for the colony as he's sort of trying to think about his role as governor general appointed by the French, but also kind of self-appointed in that role. Um, And so while it's, I, I don't think it would be correct to say as many early historians did and a lot of the people who were against the French Revolution said the French Revolution caused the Haitian Revolution. I don't think that would be correct to say because even in some of the earlier days, we see a lot of the language of Makandal, who was an enslaved person who in the 1750s kind of um, had this kind of vast vast network of poisoning um, to uh, slave owners um, that kind of that got him executed, actually, um, in front of the church in the in, in the square in Quatre Français. Um, and so we see that language in the early days. And I 
think what Toussaint Louverture did was probably what some historians have talked about as kind of being a spin doctor. He was able to take that language and co-opt it and use it to create unity. But it, so I don't think it would be safe to say that he was totally influenced by it more than he saw an opportunity to use, you know, the part of his name, Louverture, the opening. He saw an opening there and he took it. And he knew that that was language that could energize people. Um, and that he knew that especially the idea of kinfolk for a lot of the people who had been taken from their kinfolk, that this was really powerful and strong language that they would really be able to adopt and, um, and understand and appreciate. So that was part of a, an African inheritance in, in that sense then. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, in the earliest days, Toussaint Vercture does, he speaks Creole to the um, enslaved people that he's trying to rally because he saw that some of the white people in the colony could actually become allies. And he will become allies with Laveau, General Laveau at one point, and they're going to fight alongside to propel the French, or the British and the Spanish. He is initially, you know, sort of um, also aligning himself with Sontonax, one of the commissioners. Um, and so he definitely, he's an alliance builder. And that's what I mean when I say he had this kind of special capacity to bring people together um, and also to kind of to listen to the other side and to the opposition, because some of his generals under him, brigadier generals, are far more radical than he is. Um, and so you got a lot of there are a lot of plays and poems and novels that become developed out of this tradition of thinking about like all the conflicts that literature had to deal with as he tried to negotiate the relationship between some of the white French pe people he thought could advance the cause of ending slavery and keep it, keep it ended. Um, and the white people who were against him, namely, especially under Napoleon, um, and some of the very radical um, sort of uh, black generals who really were uncompromising because they had not, they were not, they were not unwhipped slaves, as the phrase was in the 18th century. And even though it's hard to imagine that Toussaint Louverture was really an unwhipped slave, Dessalines had marks, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, you know, the founder of Haitian independence, had deep scars and marks on his body. And so to someone who is used to experiencing almost complete and total unequivocal brutality from white people, it's much harder to convince them that, oh, well, we, we might be able to negotiate and create these alliances. And so the rallying cry, the great rallying cry for which Louverture is, is, is so well known, takes place in 1793. And then a year later, um, slavery is abolished by the French Jacobins. But then there's a conflict that comes into play whereby Spain and Britain also become involved um, in a kind of global conflict of this time. Could you, could you talk about that in some way? Explain what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, we didn't have the phrase world war, but I mean, this is, I mean, the Polish legion comes at one point. I mean, this is by all definitions, some kind of world war, right? Um, when, especially when you consider how many different regions of Africa, as I mentioned, many of the enslaved people were actually from. Um, and so um, the, the French and the British, or the Spanish and the British see an opening for themselves. Um, the Spanish, of course, that are, who are already on the other side of the island, um, and the British come. And um, really, in order to get the enslaved people to fight on their side, 
the French kind of have no choice but to abolish slavery. And once they do that, Toussaint Louverture is able to really effectively rally. And a lot of the free people of color had defected to the side of the British. They were sort of thinking, who are the people who are going to give us our rights uh, or better rights, especially for the free people of color, since that was their beef is sort of not being on the same par with the white French colonists. Um, And so by 1795, the Spanish have been ejected from. And so now the entire island is under French rule for this brief period of time. Um, the British, it takes a little bit longer, but the issue with, with the British is that Toussaint Louverture kind of um, takes it upon himself to work out these treaties that mean that the British are going to end up leaving the island. And it is occurring around the same time that Napoleon is rising to power in France and is going to end up defeating the directory and, you know, establishing the consulate and making himself first consul by which he effectively became a dictator. Um, And Napoleon wants to reinstate slavery, I would say, from the moment he steps into this role, but he has to wait for the, the, the Treaty of Peace with England. Once the Treaty of Peace with England is worked out, when you sort of look at the timeline, it becomes very clear that it's like, okay, the British are not, we're going to have to fight the British anymore. Because the problem is, you can't fight the enslaved people, the Spanish, and the British all at the same time, right? Um, especially since Napoleon is busy with incursions elsewhere in the world as well. He's very stretched thin. Um, and so, uh, they come, he, he sends his brother-in-law, Leclerc, to the island with an enormous amount of troops for a person who claimed to come in peace. Twenty to 40,000 troops, you know. He sends more um, formerly enslaved generals like Christophe, put up a fight. But then, you know, Christophe kind of becomes convinced, like, okay, well, maybe... Maybe things are going to be okay, but you know, by May 1802, Napoleon issues a decree that allows for the reinstatement of slavery in the colonies. So now you have slavery in the French Empire again. And by August of 1802, there are um, articles in the you know French Le Moniteur Universel, the, the main newspaper of this time in France, saying we have done it. We have conquered the enslaved people of Guadeloupe. We've reached France is successful and brought back slavery. So Toussaint Louverture was absolutely right. Napoleon had every intention of bringing back slavery. He wasn't just going to say, oh, it'll be Martinique and Guadeloupe and not in Saint-Domingue. You know, as soon as he loses Saint-Domingue, he becomes quite uninterested uh, in Louisiana, for example, which is, you know, so he doesn't need that anymore if he doesn't have Saint-Domingue, which is kind of like in this kind of triangular world that France has going on. Um, very, very important for import exports from the colon- from the other colonies. Um, and so, and so that is, that is, those are the events that precipitate Louverture's own arrest in June of 1802. And it's very clear that once he's gone, that the French just think they can do whatever they want because the actual decree by which they reinstated slavery in Guadeloupe was in July of 1802. And if the colony of Saint-Domingue had been in such insurrection, a war really at that point, slavery, it technically meant that slavery would have been reinstated there also. It's just that it never happened because of the you know, great opposition uh, put forward by Desalines and the Armée Indigène and eventually Christophe, who reunites with them. And there's an interesting tangent um, so far as Napoleon is concerned in terms of uh, warnings about this. I mean, as you say, he reimposes slavery on those French possessions. But of course, Josephine um, is herself uh, from Martinique. Um, and you seem to suggest that she warns him 
about the iniquities of, 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 of Napoleon's plan. Yes, I mean, it's sort of astonishing that, you know, of course, she's recounting this later after the fact and saying, you know, I told him not to do this. Um, and, you know, Napoleon also recognized that this was a big mistake that he made. But of course, when you're, you know, sitting in exile, you know, a decade after the fact or two, almost two decades after the fact, it's very easy to sort of re realize your mistakes. But um, it's it's interesting because Josephine, according to her account and according to Isaac Liverture, Toussaint Liverture's son, the children, when they were being educated in France, had much more contact with Josephine than they had with Bonaparte. And there are conflicting accounts of this saying like Bonaparte couldn't stand the sight of black people. He didn't want to have anything to do with these children. He invited them. He condescended to them at the dinner. And um, but but Josephine herself, you know, having grown up in Martinique, she felt, you know, that somehow um, these children, she could take them under her wing. So there are various stories about this. But from Isaac's own writings, you know, she was kind to them. She welcomed them. Um, and she appears to have seen and maybe it's because, again, living with slavery, although not an enslaved person herself and not a person of color, she knew that this was a brutal system. And I also think that it's common sense that if people have been living in freedom from slavery for basically a decade, they aren't going to just turn around and allow themselves to be enslaved again. And I should mention that people in Guadeloupe put up a fight as well. Guadeloupe is a much smaller island. So you can see that if you bring forces, which is what the French did, it's easier to conquer just because the sheer scale. Saint-Domingue is so mountainous, or Haiti, today's Haiti is so mountainous, and so it made for guerrilla warfare, and then because, again, you had all these foreign forces to fight off as well, but in Guadeloupe, the situation is different. So they did fight back, and ardently, it's just that they were overtaken, but they didn't, you know, so, so, and, and Saint-Domingue was already in conflagration, right? And so it's easy to now look back and say, well, this is why it may have succeeded in Guadeloupe and not in Saint-Domingue. But of course, at the time, the French don't know what an ardent fight um, the Haitians, the eventual Haitians are going to put up. Um, and they probably think that it's only a matter of time until they fall. And they weren't also helped along by the fact of yellow fever and by the fact that, you know, the French troops start to defect. The Polish legion starts to defect. They, people start asking, what are we fighting for here? We're so far away from home. It's not clear to them because this seems to go against a lot of the principles that French people felt like they had fought for back at home and that their people had died for and that they had executed a king for. Um, and now we're going to turn around and, and, uh, and bring back all the, a similar kind of caste system, but one that is based on race and one that is based on real instead of metaphorical slavery, because French people loved to use the idea of slavery to talk about the condition of kind of ordinary French people under the ancien regime. And, but you had real slavery that you're seeing here in Saint-Domingue of making it very apparent, like, should we go back to this? Um, so, so it was really complicated, I would say. And, um, and again, yes, Josephine seems to have, she seems to have been prescient in that sense. So, um, just before we get to um, Louverture's fate um, in France, um, how does he end up there? Because there seems to have been some kind of split uh, with Christophe and Desseline, the people who'd been his, his peers, his allies, his comrades. And can you tell us something about that? Yes, I think, you know, it's a part of the story that fascinates me, not only because I, I work on Christophe, and so I have read these letters back and forth. And, you know, 
it's fascinating because I say, why would Christoph of all people do this, right? He's the one, in fact, Isaac Lutcher in his memoirs is, talks about how stunned the troops, even those who were fighting under Brigadier General Christoph were because he was the one who had burned down the city of Cap Francais. But Christoph says, you know, we have to negotiate. So now they have a kind of re- role reversal. And in his letters to Toussaint Louverture, he's urging Louverture to go and talk to General Leclerc because Louverture really does not want to talk to him anymore. He's so insulted. Um, he thinks Leclerc is so disingenuous that he really doesn't want to have a dialogue. Um, and when they do finally talk to one another, that's how he thinks that Christophe has defected to the side of the French. Christophe doesn't, according to Isaac Literature, directly tell him. And by the time Literature found that out, it was too late. Christophe had, according to Leclerc, who publishes an account of what happens in the Le Moniteur Universel, um, sends the letter and the letter gets published there. According to this, you know, Christophe is like obsequious and fawning. I love French people. And, you know, so I take it all with a grain of salt. Um, uh, but there does... Uh, Desalines will soon capitulate. There are different stories about that. There are also people from the era like Baron de Vate who say Desalines, like if he defected, it wasn't for long, maybe a few weeks, like he, he very quickly went back. But the rest of Clairvaux, some of his, you know, m- most, um, so his, the closest generals, I mean, and I often think about like what that must have felt like for Toussaint Louverture. I mean, he talks about it in the memoirs, but uh, the theme of honor is so strong with him in the memoirs and and sort of giving an account of his life that he doesn't really get into his actual emotions with regard to when Christophe, other than anger, he talks about saying it, the, how he was angry with Christophe initially for burning down Cap Francais, although Caffarelli would later say, oh, Toussaint admitted giving him the order. So there are so many conflicting accounts. And again, especially since a lot of the people, including Liberture himself, Napoleon, Caffarelli, all these officials are telling the account after the fact, right? So they're doing a fair bit of editorializing. And then Isaac Louverture, I mean, he's writing about his father and he is attempting to put his father in the best light. Um, and then the uh, and then Desalines as well, because he's the founder, I do think there's a way in which, you know, the French newspaper said that he didn't go back to the side of um, the Armée Indigène until July. Um, and these defections end up opening the door for Louverture to be arrested. His account of it is that he, that Leclerc kept asking for a meeting, sending his sort of envoys to ask for a meeting. And he keeps saying no and finally gives in. This is Louverture's own account, travels in the middle of the night to the capital to go and meet um, with these officials. The officials soon leave the room, like everything is very weird, and they come back with a bunch of troops and they summarily arrest him. They put him on a ship. They go to his plantations. They raid the plantations. They look for his wife. They look for his children. They get them all. They put them on a different ship. They meet them, meet them up, take them to France. Louverture, uh, when he disembarks in Brest, he will never see them again. Um, and he's thrown into a prison and basically neglected um, until he dies. And he's um, the interrogator is the Caffarelli that you've, You've, you've mentioned there. And what's his role there? I mean, what, what do these interrogations consist of? Uh, so he goes there and I believe he, he interrogates him formally about three times and he keeps a journal and he writes this journal and then he submits this report. Um, so he's supposed to get Toussaint Louverture to admit fault for everything. He's supposed to, like, this is his mandate. This is what he's told to do. Find out where the treasures are. 
um, and find out like all the plots supposedly that the other that the formerly enslaved people who are still fighting who never defected to the side of the French like to reveal their plans basically and to admit that he was kind of the architect behind those plans. Um, and so Caffarelli claims that he does get Louverture to admit that he told Christophe to burn down Cap Francais, but Christophe in his memoirs says no, but he does admit that he told Dessalines and the other generals to burn down Saint-Marc and other cities after the fact. He does admit that, but not the Christophe, and um, denies that he was behind, that after he had gone home to his plantation in Henry in May of 1802, that after he'd laid down his arms, he retired. The French had offered him, Leclerc offered him to keep his title of general um, and to kind of be under Leclerc's command. And Louverture said, no, I'm going to retire. I'm going home to my plantations in Ennery. But Leclerc kept publishing reports in newspapers in Saint-Domingue and back in France, sending home letters that were saying that Louverture was still stoking the flames. Like he went home, but he's not, he didn't really, he's still like the architect and mastermind. So Caffarelli's trying to get him to admit this because the world knows about this arrest. British newspapers are publishing about it. The United States, U.S. newspapers are publishing about it, and they and the French know that it's quite inflammatory in Saint-Domingue itself for the people still in open rebellion, this arrest. So they basically want some evidence that they can publish that Toussaint Louverture is now is like this horrible person that they've been painting him to be in their newspapers. And he doesn't give them exactly what they what they need to continue to make the claim. And then when he dies, I mean, this to me is like a disaster for them on a number of levels. It's a human disaster for Louverture, for his family, for, for the people in open rebellion. But the French know, and that's why they don't report it, that news of this, of this death and the way that he died is only going to feed the flames of rebellion. And so they try to suppress it, but news gets there anyway. The, the opposition journals, like the Journal des Débats in France, find out, they publish the information, it goes to England, it goes to the United States. I mean, the French are on their last legs. Leclerc has himself died of yellow fever. His successor, General Rochambeau, had at one point been the um, governor of Saint-Domingue, of French Saint-Domingue. He is a hated figure. So the opposition is, is even more strong. He sends dogs to hunt down the revolutionaries. He is engaging and perpetuating these mass drownings. Um, you know, they are they are trying everything possible to quell this insurrection and it's just making things worse. It's only increasing the violence. And so what we see in the end is ultimately a successful revolution uh, that creates um, Haiti, which is the first black republic outside Africa. I think I'm right in saying that it's the second post-colonial society after the United States ever to be created. Um, and that's in 1804, isn't it? That's, I mean, that's an extraordinary achievement. Um, what's the legacy of that? I mean, how is that thought of now? I mean, I think it's still, I mean, we talk about, you know, when we say that the Haitian Revolution, when historians say the Haitian Revolution is this incredible moment for modern democracy, and it's because if you think about what is supposed to be the theory behind modern democracy, right? Like what is one of its most sacred principles? Okay, you can we can quote various declarations around the world, but really the idea that slavery is wrong, that slavery is the antithesis of freedom, obviously, and that they can't ex coexist together. And the Haitian Revolution um, makes the first state where that becomes a principle that is lived, where equality 
actually means equality under the law, where citizenship is for all people. Um, they outlaw empire. So even though Desalines is going to crown himself an empire later, you know, one of the earliest uh, Haitian historians, Zabermond de Vate, says that was a wrong appellation because he was an emperor with no empire. And in fact, empire was outlawed. In So this was you know, the, and, and some of the abolitionists later, like Victor Schelcher, who became a controversial figure in Haiti and is also in Martinique and statue, I know, was just, you know, damaged in Martinique there. Um, he's, he criticized the Haitian people for like not, you know, going and trying to like fight abroad for to end slavery. You know, the Haitians said, like, we're not exporting our revolution. We are not like proselytizers. The keys to that liberty, this is Boisson Tonnerre, another early Haitian historian, are in the enslaved person's own hands. That's what they said. You know, the idea was they know what to do. Enslaved people know what to do, and it's just a matter of time. And in fact, when we see what happens with British abolition, we see that there are constant slave revolts and rebellions. I mean, this is not a tenable situation anymore. And so I do think that the Haitian Revolution shows the way, um, as much as we talk about, oh, fear, it struck fear into the United States, it struck fear into, we see that it also created a sense that a different kind of future was possible and that a different world for black people was possible. And what's really unfortunate is that Haitian people have been continuously punished for that, for being the first and for daring in Desalines' words, we dared to be free. And that daring has cost them quite a lot. Um, and uh, and I think the repercussions are still being felt today, especially when you look at the sort of indemnity that France exacted uh, later as the price of their freedom. Well, Professor Dowd, that's um, an extraordinary story. It's, it's plainly a timely one with great resonance to this day and will continue to be so, no doubt. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Read Marlena's article on the wrongful death of Toussaint Louverture in the June issue of History Today, or listen to it as an audio long read available on the History Today podcast.